can people at that level of obsessed, can they be in healthy, successful relationships? When I got married, I asked the readers to share their best relationship advice. But the, the one thing that it taught me is... Helena Planet. Helena. Helena Maranova Pompliano. Helena wrote for Fortune, CNN, USA Today, and more. Author of Hidden Genius, the secret ways of thinking that power the world's most successful people. The quality of your relationships determine the quality of your life. Relationships are a huge part of your career. So if you have shitty relationships, like, I'm sorry, you can achieve success in whatever area you want, but it's hard to be a happy person if one part is kind of missing. There was one thing that stood out, the mindset that stood out. That love forget. is a skill. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? If left alone, something with, will deteriorate over time. Relationships are the same way. If we have a great relationship, but I do nothing to be intentional and to be a good partner, over time, it'll just naturally deteriorate. The one thing that's worse than getting all the success and all the achievements, what if you got it and then it turned into a nightmare? I learned this when I interviewed MMA champion Francis Ngannou, who has this incredible story. He literally came from nothing and he achieved a lot in a very short period of time. He's like, my hidden genius is that... I'm reading your book at the moment. Yes. It's great. I appreciate it. It's incredible. That. And I actually, you know, let me even show everyone. The hidden genius. Um, and I even said it to you actually yesterday when we spoke, just to give context to the audience. I was like, I could tell that you took your time with it. Yeah. Just like the little excerpts and the, the summaries at the end, you could just tell that extra time was taken. Um, and so, yeah, well done. Thank you. Well done. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yeah, it's, it's really pretty good. crazy to like write something alone and then have people read it in the wild. I still can't wrap yeah. my head around it. <laughs> yeah. How long did it actually take to put this together? So it's funny that you say like it, it, you know, you took the extra time because it only took me, I started in February of 2022 and I finished by the end of June in 2022. Okay. But I had done a lot of the work prior with my newsletter, The Profile. So it was a lot of just compiling and adding more details and putting the puzzle together. Yeah. So in that time, are you almost approaching it as like a full-time job? No. <laughs> okay, so what is like, what is even the... I know, I, I hear like authors say, oh, I'm going to take a sabbatical or a book leave or, you know, a year to write a book. And I'm just like, what else are you doing? Yeah. But I, I, I'm assuming other books probably take a lot of time depending on the genre. For me, I was still writing my weekly newsletter, which... Actually, it comes out twice a week, Wednesday and Sunday. And then I was writing the book. And then I also had a newborn baby at the time. So it was a lot of things, but I really enjoyed it because I talk a lot about how I wrote the book in the edges of time. So it was those moments where I had time for myself. And I was like, the thing that I want to do for myself is focus on this book. Um, the main time I had was when the baby went to sleep from 7 to 9 p.m. Mm. <laughs> uh, because she would sleep in two-hour stretches in the beginning. So I was like, I know I have two hours uninterrupted. And I also think and write better at night because everything's quiet. There's not a lot going on. So yeah, that it, it was honestly done every single day in little two-hour increments. Yeah, no, that's super cool. I have this... Um it's interesting that you say that you kind of, you do your best writing at night. Mm -hmm. I have the same thing, 
It's and so it's, weird. Yeah, it's like my creative hours. It's like things just unlock at mm-hmm. night. Like it's just the clarity of thought um, is just better at night. And it's interesting because before I read your book, I was reading Stephen Bartlett's book, mm-hmm. The Diary of a CEO. And he's obviously had great success with his podcast, like millions and millions of listeners every month. Um, and one of the things that I think he excels at is marketing. And he speaks about, um, when he was talking about where he puts his focus, he says it's always in the first five seconds. Like mm. the beginning is so important because that's where you capture people's attention. And so when I opened your book and I started reading the first chapter on creativity, it was interesting to me because even when you think about the most successful people in history and you think about creativity, you know, it's funny. I actually, um, I searched it on Google, like the most creative people in history. Yeah. And the names that I got, Mm. I got Walt Disney, I got Steve Jobs, I got JK Rowling, uh, Isaac Newton, (laughs) but you started with Grant Ackett. Yeah. And so I wanted to get into that decision. Like why start there? This episode is brought to you by Free Agency. If you want to take your career to the next level, Free Agency is a company that you should check out. They manage and represent talent in the tech industry, and they provide you with a dedicated talent agent to help you find, engage, and win top of market roles that will maximize your earning potential. No more leaving money on the table. Stop job searching alone and start building your dream career today with Free Agency. Anyway, back to the show. Okay, yes. So I think the bedrock of creativity is curiosity. And the reason I wanted to start the book with a chapter on creativity is because to accomplish anything in life, in your career, you need to be innately curious about yourself, other people, and just the world itself. Grant um, is, his name's Grant Ackett, and he's one of the most innovative chefs in the world. He has a restaurant called Alinea in Chicago. And I came across him because a friend who's in the restaurant business just mentioned his name and then I started looking him up and I was like, whoa. (laughs) Um, But the reason that I find him so incredibly interesting is because yes, he is creative in the way that a lot of other people are creative, the way that Walt Disney was creative. He can can see things and um, tie them together to other things and make connections where there aren't any. But the thing that I thought was hyper interesting about him is that he is a chef who got stage four tongue cancer and in going through, you know, radiation, chemotherapy, all that stuff, uh, he lost his ability to taste. And so the irony of a top master chef who lost his ability to taste, you're like, how on earth are you ever going to be creative again? And that was what was interesting to me is that I watched an interview with him where he was like in that period of time is when I learned the biggest lesson that um, taste doesn't come from your mouth. It comes from your other senses too. Like actually the majority of taste is visualizing the food um, and how it smells. So it was almost, he was forced to be logical (laughs) in order to be creative, which I find fascinating. And he, um, that's those, that period of time where he lost his sense of taste, uh, actually ended up being some of the most innovative, um, and creative periods of his life 
because he was able to say, okay, when the diner comes to the restaurant and they see a strawberry, they expect it to taste like a strawberry. But when they put it in their mouth, it actually tastes like a tomato. And they're just like so confused because visually they're seeing one thing, but they're perceiving something different. So that's the part that was most interesting to me. And I wanted to dispel the notion that creativity is just a muse or a moment of inspiration that will never come to you again or that you have to be in the right mood. It's something that takes years of hard work and mm. actually logic and rationality, which is counterintuitive to what most people think it is. Yeah. You know, actually, what I love about this book, because even when you see the the secret ways of thinking that power the world's most successful people, I think, especially if you're into that sort of content and studying those sorts of people, there's certain thoughts and ideas that automatically come to mind. Mm -hmm. um, and I think throughout this book, you kind of flip it on its head in certain moments. And I think one of them was what you just said about being creative. And when I think about being creative, you can even imagine it from like being in the classroom when you were a kid, yeah. there's certain people that you look at and you're like, they're just creative. Right. You know, we all have a picture in our mind of like the artist. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that was interesting that you mentioned, it's almost like um, you can practice creativity. Like you can mm -hmm. learn the skill of creativity. Can you talk more about that? That like someone can get more creative? A hundred percent. So for example... I, my whole life, have enjoyed writing, but I never enjoyed what they call creative writing, which is like make up a story and do this. I, I, I liked the real world and I like truth. Yeah. <laughs> I found that like real stories were just much more compelling to me than fantasy and Harry Potter and all, all that stuff. Oh my God, I'm going to get canceled for saying I don't like Harry Potter. <laughs> um, but when... I found journalism, the thing that appealed to me most was that I, I could be creative in this sort of sandbox, like there were rules and boundaries, but within that I could be creative. And so, for example, when you're in journalism, you can't just tell your editor, I'm a creative, I need to take two weeks with the story. It's like, no, the story needs to be in by 5 p.m. You have deadlines. And there's certain rules to how you write where it's like there's a lead, there's a nut graph, the rest of the story, more detail, quotes, and then you end with a nut graph, which is like the final kicker. Um, so, okay, so those, like that's the structure, but within that you can write and be creative and, and choose the way you storytell. Um, so I like structure. And in the book, I talk about how Aaron Sorkin, um, he is very creative. I mean, he has, uh, he wrote The Social Network and a bunch of other um, films. And he talks about, you know, rules can actually augment your creativity if you use them correctly. You can't be innovative. Well, I guess you can, but most people cannot be innovative if they don't know what the rules are. The most innovative people know what the rules are take Elon Musk, for example, why does it work this way? They know what the rules are and they're like, those are stupid rules. I don't like those rules. And then they not only break the rules, but they invent new rules. So it's like, it's that process of, I understand what it is. I don't want to play that game. Uh, it's like, you can only break the rules if you know the rules. 
and then uh, and then create something new. And um, and he says basically the difference between creativity uh, and like a masterpiece in art um, is that there are rules within which you mold them and twist them and whatever. And complete unstructured freedom is finger painting. Mm. Mm. No, that's so um, that's so interesting and it's so good. And I I love it. It's like. Um, it's, it's almost ironic. It's not what you expect. It's like a paradox in that the constraint enhances the creativity. Yeah. Which is not what you would expect. You almost see those as like opposing forces, right? Mm -hmm. um, you think about the artist being like free, like no right. rules, no constraints, but actually having constraint enhances the creativity. I think it's so good and it's so true. Um, you know what? I want to zoom out for a second mm -hmm. and I want to get to your story <laughs> which is and you know actually you can maybe even estimate the number how many hours not even just in writing this book but like even in doing the profile have you spent like studying successful people and like how they do things in their process my whole life <laughs> yeah um <clears throat> i think that i think that when you're someone who, like, my parents and I moved to the U.S. when I was eight, and I didn't speak the language, so I was forced to observe people and, you know, like, ask myself, like, why things were a certain way and why they did things a certain way. And a lot of that just came naturally because of the move. So I liked studying people in their body language, how they presented themselves to the world. Um, and I always had a group of friends that were quite different, um, but I liked that because I found that there was something to learn from each of them. And then when I moved to New York, it was, um, I was like feeling kind of lost and I didn't really know anyone who had achieved something that I wanted to achieve. A lot of my friends had stayed in Atlanta and they had already taken jobs and I was working at a startup in New York City. So I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Like, I want to I want to write, but like, how do I get there? What am I doing? I just felt really aimless. So I started I came across a podcast that Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, had done. She was from Atlanta, too. Um, so we had that in common. And I was like, uh you know, she talks about her early life and feeling aimless and not knowing what she wanted to do. And she tried to audition to be goofy at Disney World and was like too short for the job or she was selling fax machines until one day she was like, I'm in the wrong movie. How can I get closer to what I want to do? And she was just kind of open to ideas in her whole world, Grant Ackett talks about this, it became a kaleidoscope of ideas. Everything that she saw was like, how can this be a potential business? Or for Grant, it was, how can everything that I see, how can I apply it to the dining experience? So it becomes like the, the, the whole world becomes kind of a sensorium. You're experiencing it with all of your senses. And that was the first time where I thought about, wait a second, I can learn from someone and they can be my mentor without knowing them in real life. Mm. Um, and so she kind of became that for me and I just consumed everything she had written written about, the things that had been written about her, 
podcasts, videos, interviews, everything. And, and from there, <clears throat> I was doing that not for anybody else. I was just doing that for myself. So from there, I was like, if I ever want to learn about a new idea, I can just find the person that can best teach me that, that best embodies that idea without ever having to meet them. Mm. You know what's um you know what's so interesting to me is we've probably done we've done over 70 episodes of the podcast so far. Mm -hmm. Um we've had so many people in that chair that have achieved so many different things and I think every single one of them had a really keen understanding of their edge. Mm. And um it's really pertinent for me at the moment like with the stage that I'm at because that's the only thing I'm like trying to figure out is like what is my edge like what is my unique way of doing things and i think sometimes the difficulty in figuring out your edge is it's the thing that comes the most natural yeah. to you so you're not cognizant that it's an edge because it just feels That's like true. That isn't else everyone do doing that <laughs> yeah and so your like fascination with observing people most people don't have that level of interest in observing someone else right Yeah. I think we probably observe and analyze our own lives and we think about what we're experiencing but we don't take that time to study. So this is almost like the it's the manifestation of your edge. Right. Yes, which I didn't realize was my edge for I was like what do you mean not everybody likes learning from other people? <laughs> like some people just read history books and they like the facts and they like it straight and I'm like oh wait that's not me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was there a point, um, <clears throat> was there a moment where you really realized and it like really crystallized clearly in your mind, like, oh, this is my thing? Or was it kind of like a series of moments? It was mostly a series of moments, but I, so, so two things come to mind. The first was in high school when I was taking these world history classes and I couldn't connect to the material. I couldn't remember anything. I failed the tests. And then I realized like the way that I'm being taught is not how I learn. I need to figure out how I learn and what's interesting to me. And I um, just happened to come across like we were learning about, it was AP European history. <laughs> and we were learning about the French Revolution and it was um, Marie Antoinette. And I found her a, like a fascinating character. And I was like, what if I can just learn through her and learn about this historical moment and why things just escalated in the way they did um, and how that was symbolic of the time itself. So it was like I started trying to humanize the time. So it was like there was Marie Antoinette. Why were people so mad? Oh, the newspaper said that, you know, she was this young queen and she didn't deserve any of this. Um, and she became almost a symbol of excess to the common people. Of course they hated her. Of course they didn't want her there. And then it was just this like uprising and it was it, it became a human story full of like emotion and um her son had to accuse her of all these crimes and like you feel like the grief and the embarrassment and the shame that she must have experienced at 19 years old. Um so so again for me the, the way that I remember things is through really strong emotion. That's why they say you'll always remember where you were on 9-11 or when your grandmother died. Something that like really meant something to you, you know exactly where you were and what you were doing. Because the brain 
remembers emotion and that emotion creates a memory. So I was like, if I can connect with these people in this way, I can study for my history test. <laughs> and then later in life, when I was applying to work at Fortune magazine, there was a woman there named Patty Sellers. And her job, which was my dream job, I realized, is that she would write deep, deeply reported profiles of people. They were business people, but like, she would take somebody I'd never heard of or don't care about and make me care. And I was like, how is that? That is like a superpower. And she made me care because of the human elements that we all have. I don't care if you're a Fortune 500 CEO, you've probably had some really dark moments. Um, I was just reading a profile on um, Michael Lewis, who is the author who wrote Moneyball, and he just wrote the uh, Sam Bankman-Fried book, Going Infinite. And I was reading the profile and I was like, wow, I didn't realize that his daughter uh, died in a car accident in 2021 and he thought he would never write again. Suddenly, like that humanized him for me. Um, I was reading articles before that period on him and uh, people kept saying how he's always in the right place at the right time. And like he has well, somebody said he has like a horseshoe in his underwear or something. He's like super lucky. Mm. Nothing ever goes wrong in his life. He has the perfect, like, perfect life. And then that happens. And then you see how it's affected him, how he thought he would never write. Then he ended up writing this book and he dedicated the book to his daughter. And it's, I don't know, it's just like nobody is perfect. And I think what I tried to um, hopefully accomplish with this book is take away the this idea that success means perfection and achievement and this amazing thing. Success doesn't exist in a vacuum and everybody's dealing with stuff you don't know about. And it's like, if you can pull out the human emotion, that's ultimately how people learn and how you can learn about yourself, about what your edges are, about what you really like or what your hidden genius is. Yeah, you know, it's actually, it's actually really, um, it's exciting for me to think about because I think um, having an awareness of what your edge is and then being able to deploy it can change your life. Yeah. Right. And when you talk about what you said is so true in that we put certain people on like a pedestal mm -hmm. and we all do it. Right. Like I love basketball. LeBron James doesn't even really seem like human to me. Yeah. Like no, he like doesn't seem, none of the things that he's done, it, it seems like on a different level. Right. And I'm sure it's like um, for certain people, if they think, or thought about like Elon Musk or mm -hmm. Steve Jobs, whatever arena it is, we put right. certain people on a pedestal, but they knew their edge and they were deploying resources and talent right. and time against that edge. And so it can change, it can change your life. I think where my mind goes it's like the edge is everything like knowing your edge is everything so it's like how do you get to that point where you have that awareness and you have the confidence and you have the experiences that really ground the fact that this is your edge like this is my thing and the word that comes to mind is uncertainty <laughs> and the reason why I say uncertainty is that there's a journey to finding your mm -hmm. edge. 
And until the point that you kind of build that awareness and that confidence, you don't know. Right. And so it's pure uncertainty. And even when you were saying your story and it's like you're seeing your peers and people around you, mm -hmm. it feels like they're finding their thing in the world, right? Like they're going to their jobs. Maybe they're starting a family. Maybe they bought their first house. Yeah. And sometimes your life hasn't progressed or it's not at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious from your story, because I think so many people that are high achievers, people that are ambitious, mm -hmm. it's something that we struggle with, which is the uncertainty, which is not knowing, which is feeling directionless, feeling aimless. I'm curious about that part of your story, the uncertainty and how you handled it. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, like edge, hidden genius, X factor, like all of those things are essentially the same thing. It's like, I believe we all have it. It's just many of us haven't connected the dots to discover it yet. Mm -hmm. So that's what I tried to do with the 10 chapters in the book is like every single chapter is something that hopefully pushes you in that direction where you're like, oh, I have noticed a pattern or I do enjoy this type of thing or this person's story really resonates with me. So for me, uncertainty is, I have an interesting relationship with uncertainty because um, as you know, anybody who's ever moved to a different country and had to learn cultural norms and just everything's new, um, you want to squash that uncertainty as quickly as possible. So when we first moved here, everything was uncertain. My parents were getting divorced. We didn't speak the language. We had no money. We lived in a really shitty area. Everything sucked, <laughs> to put it lightly. I don't <laughs> talk a lot about that period, but it sucked. So as an eight-year-old, my brain is still like forming. So in my head, I, I still distinctly remember thinking, I will never deal with this level of uncertainty again. Like I made a promise to myself that I will find something safe and secure and live a comfortable life where there was like no uncertainty and I could control everything and see around every corner. But as we all know, life doesn't work that way. And every time I had a plan, somehow like life just like smacks you across the face is like you're going this way, um, unfortunately or fortunately. Um, but what was interesting is that when I got to Fortune, I never thought I'd leave because I, to be quite honest, I'm not driven by money. So I know in your interview with my husband, Anthony, he talks about like how he sees money as a game. Like to him, it's fun. To me, it's like, whether I have it or I don't, I can be happy. Not that he can't be, but I'm just saying like, it doesn't make me, it doesn't invigorate me the way that it does him. I'm not excited to negotiate a salary with someone. I'm not <laughs> excited to like strike a deal. You know, that's just yeah. not what it is for me. Um, so even if I had never gotten a raise working at Fortune Magazine and I stayed at that level, totally fine. As long as I could be doing the thing that I wanted to be doing, which was meeting interesting people and writing articles. So um, I thought I would be there my whole life until 2020 when I had already started my newsletter on the side and I really liked, again, I liked people. At Fortune, I was covering more like tech and venture capital and private equity, you know, 
people were at the center of that, but it wasn't just purely focused on profile this person. And with the profile, with my newsletter that I was doing on weekends, I could do that. Um, but then I ran into the problem of, I can't be writing original content and doing interviews with people for myself because that's competitive to fortune. It's a different media entity, whatever. So I had to make a decision. Would I ever leave fortune to pursue this newsletter thing? Or would I stay at fortune for the rest of my life? And I felt like I was at a point where I wasn't growing. Um, and Anthony asked me, he was like, if they like double your salary tomorrow, would you stay? And I was like, no. <laughs> I, it, it, was, it was something, even though I knew on the other side there was uncertainty um, of leaving and pursuing the profile full time, it was an exciting uncertainty where I was like, ooh, this could be interesting. Um, and I made a pro and con list of leaving. And on the con list was there could be a recession. It's a 10-year cycle. Like all the things that could go wrong. And then the one thing I didn't foresee was a global pandemic. <laughs> so even then, even when you try to account for the uncertainty, something else comes along. Um, I, but I found that it's not the fear of failing that I have. It's more of a fear of like falling and not knowing if there's like a safety net there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is like, um, that's like a funny thing about life, isn't it? It's like, um, so often I feel like it's like the one thing you don't want to happen. Right. <laughs> or do you or even like, know could happen. Yeah. Or like the thing that you're planning against, you're like, okay, at least this isn't going to yeah. happen. Like we... <laughs> We've mitigated for this is the exact um, is the exact thing that happens. You know, what? I'm curious with the with the context of um, when you were eight years old. Mm -hmm. It was like the one thing that you just didn't want to happen or experience mm. in life was like the uncertainty was going back to that feeling. Yeah, it's the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. We all have that and it tends to be, I think it's always something in like our childhood. It's like a feeling that we had as kids that we're like, I just don't want to feel that again. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, like when the, when the pandemic happens and that must be, I think definitely in my life in terms of like on a macro scale. Yeah. Like society. Right. That's probably the pinnacle of uncertainty, it's right? It's not only happening to you. It's yeah. happening to everybody else. <laughs> yeah. And I even remember those early moments because it was like institutions and places that we saw as like authority figures right. suddenly didn't know the answer. Right. And it was like, who? No, you kind of just had to come up with it yourself. Yeah. I'm curious how you've made this decision this thing has happened, which is completely out of your control. Like, where is your mind going? Because no one felt like they had a safety net during really the pandemic, right? Like yeah, it was, no. it just felt like the wild, wild west in a sense. Like you don't know when it's going to be over. You don't know yeah. if it's going to be over. If this is just like a new reality. Mm -hmm. Where was your mind at? Uh, so I like what you said and that when something uncertain and big happens we tend to look to the authority figures like okay what now and then they don't know the answer and it's very similar to like 
kids of divorced parents, it's the first time I think when my parents got divorced that I felt this thing of, holy cow, there's so much uncertainty, what now? And when I realized they didn't know or like they weren't perfect in their delivery, I was like, wait a second, nobody actually knows what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I learned that at a very young age. So I've never had, <laughs> I joke with Anthony about this. He's always like questioned authority in a very direct way. I've questioned authority in a non-direct way, hence journalism, but like I've never liked the power and the, um, you just have to, do what I say because I'm the boss or whatever. Like I, I, I've always questioned that through writing, but it was in a more like indirect way. Mm -hmm. um, so, so in 2020, I remember, I mean, I had worked at Fortune for five years and my like goodbye party was on Zoom and it was just, the, the mm -hmm. whole thing was just so weird to me. But in that moment, because everything, I actually wrote about this, because everything was so chaotic, it somehow clicked and I wasn't that terrified mm -hmm. because it was like, it was the wild, wild west, like anything could happen. Um, and for when I started, when I went full time on my Substack, there were no other writers that I knew of who had left their traditional media jobs to do Substack full time. Uh, so, I was like, let's see what happens. And it kind of unfolded where people now were spending a lot of time at home. They were willing, they had more time to read uh, and they were willing to pay for high quality content after you had exhausted all the junk content that was like, remember Tiger King and mm. Love is Blind and everything <laughs> that we all watched. It was like, okay, now I'm, I'm willing to support this with my dollars. And also I think you underestimate the fire under your butt <laughs> when you jump mm -hmm. and people see that. I think it was James Clear who said, you get luckier by just telling people what you're working on. Um, people shockingly do wanna help and they do wanna support you. I know when I see somebody trying to do something on their own or taking a risk or betting on themselves in some way, like I want to help mm -hmm. innately. Um, so, all of that helped, but there was no, it was just, it was just like uncertainty in relying on yourself to figure it out. Mm. You know, that is, I think that's such a good point for people, which is like, once you kind of do take the bet on yourself um, and you're open with sharing it, Mm -hmm. then it allows people to come in and help you. And it almost goes back to something that you said earlier, which I, I just love the way that you put it, which is like, um, it made it a human story. Yeah. Because that is a human story of taking the bear of, you know, not knowing where the picture or where the path is going to go, but doing it regardless. Mm -hmm. It's like a story now. It's something that people can get on board. And it reminds me actually... Um, I'm in the part of the book and I was actually reading it on the train on the way over here where you started talking about stories uh -huh. and it's interesting for me like where I'm at even with the with the podcast um, and with the agency I'm building is it's like shit like storytelling is everywhere yeah like every single thing we do is storytelling and I think there's a part in this book where you even talk about 
the importance of story both to ourselves and like to the outside world mm-hmm. um can you elaborate on that just the impact the importance of storytelling yeah what i try to do with the book first consciously then subconsciously i don't know how it turned out but the part that i really try to weave in is that perspective and identity are slippery things like they're not something where you can say definitively this is who i am and i will never change i am this human like i am a fixed person i try to play with that and then also the other part that i played with was the the theme of uh perspective and storytelling and how the story that you tell yourself can actually uh really affect your life um and i did it so for example <laughs> uh i start the chapter off with a um psychotherapist and she talks about how a lot of times she will hear two sides of let, let's say a a married couple that's having issues and she hears one side and then the other side and she was like oh my god like this is you guys are seeing yourselves in the world so differently uh but it's the same story like the facts are all the same mm-hmm. but the stories are so different um and i include in there this anecdote of lynn manuel miranda uh the playwright uh, behind hamilton and he talks about how in high school when he broke up with his first girlfriend um he was like then i realized that i'm not the main character in her story i'm the support i play a supporting role but in my story i'm this like heartbroken artist who is you know whatever uh trying to find his way but in her story i'm actually just the obstacle from that is preventing her from finding her real love story which is her husband or something mm. so it's like the way that you see yourself is so different from how other people see yourself and i think we could all benefit from understanding that we're not the center of the universe and that we ourselves play supporting roles in other people's stories and also that um it makes you more observant of the world because if you think about your day like you were on the train today all the people on that in that train car were like extras in the yeah. movie of count you yeah. know what i mean how often do we like stop and notice something about someone or even tell them or learn the name of the barista at the coffee shop that we see every single morning i recently listened to a podcast that said that actually um people say that <clears throat> strong ties like the relationships that you have with family and friends are what determine happiness but actually there's a lot of power in weak ties which are the daily interactions we have with strangers that actually a really big contributor to our happiness because there's an element of surprise there's an element of serendipity you could be sitting next to someone you mention that you have a podcast they turn out to be this fascinating character suddenly there's a podcast um and it's those things that we lost during the 2020 mess because we got so isolated a lot of us moved to the suburbs a lot of us lost the daily serendipity and the daily moments that actually can lead to a really extraordinary life mm. you know what um 
you were talking about, I, I love the way you put it. So you were talking about the, um, me even coming in here in, in the, this morning. Um, and it's true, right? Like I'm sitting on the train and everyone is an extra. Right. You're uh, the main character. <laughs> yeah. I'm the main character. I'm Spider-Man. Like I'm, <laughs> um, but then I guess to them, I'm an extra. Yeah. And it was interesting. As you said that, I wrote down in my notes, I just put uh, NYC, New York. And it's interesting coming from London um, and moving here because... When did you move? I moved four years ago. And I think the the unique thing about New York is that extras can become main characters. (laughs) Explain that more. Okay, so like if this is how I think about it in my perspective and even with media... If you take someone like Casey Neistat and he built like this huge following just doing these daily vlogs and right. telling these stories. If you think about the main character in his story, I would almost call it like New York. Right. Like he would just go out into the city. And the FedEx guy. Yeah. <laughs> and things would just happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is about the makeup and like almost in the genes of New York, but... You never know where your story is going as you're just exploring this city. And the homeless guy on the corner can suddenly become a main character. The FedEx guy can suddenly Mm -hmm. become a main character. The lady that serves you like coffee in the morning can become a main character in a way that it doesn't in any other city that I've experienced. Even London? Um, No. Interesting. London is more orderly than New York. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, New York yeah, yeah. is just so random that it's like, <laughs> it's the serendipity that you were talking yeah. about. It's like someone can just suddenly enter stage left and now they're like in the... It's like, like what are you doing on yeah, my stage? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I was the leading role and now this person is. That's um, hilarious. That's so true though. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting because I never thought about the pandemic from that perspective mm-hmm. of like, the weak ties, like we were missing all of the extras. There was no extras. Right. And, and, and the point is that, yes, it's good to have really strong ties with family and friends, but the odds that you guys aren't already watching the same shows or reading the same books or whatever are pretty low. But the odds that you're sitting next to somebody on the train and you see them reading a book and you're like, oh, that looks interesting and it pops into your brain that you should, you know, buy that and then it changes your life in some way. I, <clears throat> we just moved back to New York from Miami. And I, when I was telling Anthony, I was like, it just, it's that. It's like, I know exactly how my day is going to go today. I can tell you from 7.30 AM until 5.30 PM, exactly where I'll be, what I'll be doing. And it's not to say that if you live in a suburban place or a more rural place, you can't have those moments, but you have to be extremely intentional about them. And you don't need that intentionality in a place like New York. Uh, when I was watching one of Casey's episodes or vlogs, he said, um, in New York, it feels like every day you wake up and a story just like slaps you in the face. Yeah. Like that's that's what people live for here, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's so interesting as I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm also thinking about your your story and the the eight-year-old Helena that just wanted the certainty wanted to know definitively like yeah. okay this is what is going to happen and we fast forward uh to today and you're moving from Miami to New York and the reason why was like in Miami I knew exactly what was going to happen mm-hmm. 
Like the eight-year-old's dream oh, had manifested. <laughs> Wait, and that's hilarious. I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious, like, do you ever think about what a conversation or what an experience would be like if the current day Polina <laughs> had a conversation with the eight-year-old Polina? Like, what do you think would even be said? I, it, I was so radically different from who I am today that I was really, really shy, really introverted. I would just like read a lot. Um, and, and I was very insecure with myself. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about this like weird dichotomy earlier where, well, first of all, I believe that your greatest insecurity or people's greatest strengths were probably once their greatest insecurities. So um, for me, my biggest insecurity was talking to people uh, in public <laughs> and having to be on video, things like that. Like that was true, truly my worst nightmare. Um, but basically, basically I didn't wanna like reveal myself. So in the book, I talk about conformity and how when you come from another place and you feel like you're the center of attention because you're weird and you know you don't speak the language, you over rotate and you become super well liked and you end up having no opinions and just agreeing with everybody else is saying. And then everyone's like, oh, I really like her. Like, she's great. She never disagrees with me. Mm -hmm. um, we're very similar because you're like a chameleon. Um, but then you realize people don't actually know who you are. And then um, it's called like norm normative social influence where you, you're very well liked in society, but you feel really lonely because you don't feel like anybody actually knows you. And so I think for a very long time, I liked studying other people because it was almost like a shield between me in the world and I could always hide behind other people's words. Mm. So like, ooh, did that offend you? Sorry, Melinda Gates said it, not me, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> but, but I think in writing this book, I actually included a lot of my personal story, uh, which helped break that smoke screen a little bit more. And people, I think, I hope, liked what I had to say instead of just hiding behind other people's words. So it's like, Yes, telling people stories is probably my greatest strength, but it grew out of like an insecurity. Yeah. Yeah. And it just becomes, it becomes so much more powerful when your story is included mm. uh, because then it becomes personal. It becomes, it goes back to what you said about the human story. Yeah. Um, and I was actually just thinking also as you were speaking, it's like, I think in a lot of, especially when we're younger, because we just want to be liked, like we just want to be accepted yep. by the group. And I think in our mind, like our worst nightmare at that point is just not being accepted. It's just not yeah. being liked. But I actually think the worst thing is actually to be loved, revered, deeply liked for someone that isn't you. Right. Incredibly lonely way to live. <laughs> yeah. Like it sucks. Like it's, it's terrible. But sorry, just a small asterisk. I think that changes for me at least that changed when I moved to New York because here being so aggressively yourself is celebrated 
And mm. actually the other thing is looked down upon. When I went to the University of Georgia, like I kind of wanted to blend in. Like I didn't really, mm. like the, the individuality wasn't as celebrated as it is here. Mm. Why? I think it's just the culture is more, um, it's more like a Southern way of thinking where it's less about like, this is what I think and this is what I believe. And it's more like, what is best for the group and sorority culture was very big there. It's, 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 I mean, Greek life is conformity. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I worked at the student newspaper. It was a little different for me, but again, like when the culture around you isn't one that's all for be unique and you can have blue hair, mm. you don't have blue hair. Yeah. <laughs> when you come to New York, nobody even bat an eye of what you look like. And I, and I think that that's almost like a freeing thing of, oh, okay, I can speak an opinion and I won't be totally judged for it. And I actually think <clears throat> people who conform, um, they don't have a variety of experiences that they can kind of look at the world through a different prism. For me, I can have so many different types of friends that I feel comfortable like debating with because I have the experience of being born in Bulgaria, growing up in Atlanta, and then moving to New York. Those are three totally different um, experiences that people are never just black and white to me. Like I, I see the areas of nuance. I see detail. I see contradiction. I love seeing contradiction within a person because yeah. that's, that's what's true. Nobody like just genuinely uh, believes every single thing that their favorite political party believes. It's like, it, it is impossible. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think the same. I love the contradiction. And I, I think the, the reason why for me is um, it all goes back to authenticity. Mm -hmm. I have this thing, actually, I wrote it on Twitter a few months ago. Um, just something that I thought about at night, okay. as I would, <laughs> um, which is, I think when you're being truly authentic, you're like naturally polarizing. Yes. Like when you're, you know, sometimes when you're like joking with your friends, yeah. that's when like you're really good friends, like close friends. Yeah. That's when like your more polarizing opinions or like just things about you tend to come out. Yeah. It's because you're being who you truly are. Right. And certain things are in contradiction or like wouldn't make sense mm -hmm. um, because that's just what we're like as humans. There's something deeply human about being a contradiction. Yes. Um, yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's something actually I wanted to, to key in on and I thought about it as you were saying it. Um, when I asked why, it was like, what you were saying about New York is so correct <laughs> that like, I don't know what it is, but you, it's like you double down on yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and I've gone through that experience being here, which is like, I think I always saw myself as an individual or well, not yeah. always, but for like a number of years I have done. But then coming to New York and living here and being around this environment and the energy and the hustle it like dialed it up a few notches. Yeah. I was like, I just want to do this. Like, I just want to do the thing that feels callum. And I've never thought about it was New York that had that, <laughs> had that effect. But I think if you look at a lot of um, successful people that came mm -hmm. out of New York, they almost have like a gratitude to the city. Yeah. Because it was like, it almost formed them. 
Have you read Colson Whitehead's uh, essay? Um, it's called The Way We Live Now. No. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm sending it <laughs> to you immediately after this. It's Let's about do- exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, he wrote it a few days after, or a few months after 9-11, and he was talking about how it's a city of 9 million people, but New York, you and I have different New Yorks. Mm. <laughs> and he's talking about how, like... Um, you know, all the different apartments you lived in or all the different bodegas you used to visit, at one point they shut down or somebody else lived in the apartment. And um, he talks about it in like, for example, um, one, you know, we always mourn the the things in our past, like, oh, the way New York used to be. And like this 20-year-old has no idea what they're talking about. Like yeah. this used to be this building. Um, and he's like, you always have to remember that the city streets are kind of like calendars of our lives and as they change, so do we. Um, and then the, the one part that gets me is like, he's like, when you went to that, you know, bodega that is now a travel, whatever agency, um, at one point you were closer to the end and you didn't even know it. So he was like, you took it for granted when you lived here. But now it's like nostalgic. You're like, oh, that used to be the real New York. Mm-hmm. And I think the the beauty of New York, which is the beauty we have as humans, is that it's constantly changing and it doesn't stay constant. So you can't ever just like put a pin in and be like, this is New York. It's like constantly changing. Mm. It's like it goes back to the story. Like the story is constantly being told. And then it's like you have to kind of find your place within that. And, yeah. and your story is evolving um, at the same time with the city. It's almost like you're growing with the city, yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Which that's is a unique experience. That's why New York, like you said, is like kind of the main character in Casey's videos. Yeah, that is cool. I had never thought about it in that, in that level of depth. Okay, here's where I want to go okay. next. <laughs> Enough New York talk. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone that's not in New York is <laughs> no, like, what I'm are these so people? I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, an interesting thing to me when I was reading the book is we have kind of these ideas when we think about the most successful people. Um, and, you talk, and you spoke about like the 10 chapters and the importance of them. One of the chapters is on relationships. <laughs> and I think when you think about a book of the most successful people and their secrets... Mm-hmm your mind probably doesn't go to their relationship. Mine always does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, like it's kind of unexpected. And I even said in the beginning, I said there's a few things in here that are unexpected. Um, why was there a chapter on relationships? Like why was that important? I truly believe that the quality of your relationships determine the quality of your life. So if you have shitty relationships, like I'm sorry, you can achieve success in whatever area you want, but it doesn't, that part of your life is not successful or is not meaningful. You you don't, um, it's not fulfilling. And it's hard to be a happy person (laughs) if one part is kind of missing. I, uh, I was just, before I came here, I was reading about James Cameron, the director behind Mm. Terminator, Titanic, Avatar. And like the details that I remember, Um, it, it, or interesting. So I think that you can learn something from anybody 
even if you don't feel like you connect with them or you like them even, or uh, they could be so wildly different from you. And for him, he's been married five times. <laughs> um, and it's like, okay, that takes a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of, um, I don't know, strife. And I don't know how he felt, but it's like, it takes a lot. So how can you be successful in one area of your life if all this energy is being diverted to this? Um, he said to one of his wives that he didn't want kids because he said something along the lines of anybody can be a husband or a father, but there's only like five people in the world who can do what I do as a director. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to focus on that, even though he ended up having five kids. So I don't know how he like <laughs> reconciled that. Um, so, <laughs> so it's interesting, like that gives you a small window into how he thinks and what he believes um in the way he conducts himself with um with why i included a relationships chapter is i truly believe that success again is kind of all it, there's so many different parts to it so just because you're Elon Musk and you're very, very intelligent and you think you can take us to Mars, there might be other areas in your life where you could learn from somebody else. So in the relationships chapter, there's people who could learn from somebody in the leadership chapter and vice versa. Um, I just thought it was so important because with writing my newsletter, The Profile, when I got married, I asked the readers to share their best relationship advice and they it was so practical and so specific and so universal um and it like the, the the one thing that it taught me is this is a really important part of life and if you don't master this it'll be really hard to master business you have to relationships are a huge part of business relationships are a huge part of your career any other area of life you, if you don't know how to treat people and if you don't know how to earn trust with people it'll be very hard for you to be successful in any other area yeah you know i um i remember the part you're talking about when you speak about um you ask the readers of your newsletter their relationship advice mm -hmm. and i remember there's a section where you say uh the one thing they gave so many like small practical tips that were all useful. Yeah. But there was one thing that stood out. The mindset that stood out was that um, you could get better over time or like your relationship. That love get... is a skill. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Like that mindset of it can get better over time. Yeah. Basically, the law of entropy can happen anywhere. Basically that if left alone, something with, will deteriorate over time. Relationships are the same way. If we have a great relationship, but I do nothing to be intentional and to be a good partner, over time, it'll just naturally deteriorate. Um, and I think a lot of people find something great and then they're like, it'll always be great. And you don't put the daily effort in required to sharpen that skill and become a better partner for the other person. You're just relying on the how it was in the beginning. Um, and I, in there, it's so fascinating the, the, my biggest takeaway is that in any relationship, whether it's business or personal, it's often not one big blowout fight that ends the relationship. It's usually years of like 
disrespect and small, tiny things that chip away at the relationship that ultimately make it um, uh, fall apart. And I talk about this uh, psychotherapist named John Gottman, and he claims that he can predict within 94% accuracy whether a married couple will stay together or whether they'll get divorced. And the way he does that is he created this love lab, which um, he had couples go into an apartment that was the lab, and he just watched them over on camera over the next few days. And the one thing he noticed is that people who answered each other's bids for attention were the most likely to stay together over a long period of time. And what that means is that every single time of the day where you're with a partner or a friend or anybody like that, you make bids for attention. Hey, look at this meme I just saw or uh, look at that bird. In, in John's example, he says there was, for example, one partner said, hey, look at that bird outside. The very act of whether their partner turned their head to look at the bird told you whether they responded to their bid and whether that couple would stay together for a very long time. I found that fascinating because it's like, oh, I'm just gonna ignore them this one time and then this one time becomes a second time and then you just become super detached. And if you don't put in the effort and time, it will naturally deteriorate. Yeah, no, I, I loved this um, this quote that you said which is small things often is so much more important than big things occasionally. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was such a good way to kind of like summarize it. You know what? I think um, the James Cameron example is really interesting. It's really interesting to me. And I think anyone that's reading this mm -hmm. and you're studying successful people and in this book, there's just like a, there's an ambition in it, right? <laughs> there's an ambition to what you're trying to do. You're trying to learn from someone who's achieved amazing things. And I'm assuming the motivation is so that you can replicate some of that within yeah. your own life in some, in some sense. And I think where my mind goes, especially when we're talking about relationships, is like the ambition, like balancing the ambition with this care <laughs> and caring about those details and those small things. Um, and that's almost the thing with the with the James Cameron example mm -hmm. is he is so consumed and obsessed with his craft. Yes. That it makes it so difficult, I would assume, to be caring towards someone else when your mind, your mindset is so focused um, on the craft and getting better and being one of the five best in in history to do something yeah um do you think like can people are that that are that level of ambitious that are that level of obsessed can they be in healthy successful relationships <laughs> okay so i think yes if you had asked me like eight years ago i would have said no uh because i didn't have examples of that and I remember calling my dad 2015 or something. Um, and I was like, okay, figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think, I think my theory is that really ambitious women cannot be with really ambitious men and vice versa. One partner has to not 
has to just be completely supportive of what the other person wants and needs and James Cameron and whatever. And he was like, mm, I just don't think you've met somebody actually ambitious if you think that. And I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, and so, and then in 2016, when I met Anthony, it made sense. But the, 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 here's how I kind of like think about it. A really good example to me of two really ambitious people who have made their marriage work and actually share lessons from their marriage with other people that resonate is Sarah Blakely and Jesse Itzler. They were both incredibly successful in their own fields before they came together. And once they came together, um, Sarah once said, 95% of our marriage is just ideas. So it's like, they it, it's almost like this like intellectual play where they talk about ideas, they help each other generate ideas. And the way that I see it is if both partners are ambitious, the level of caring has to come for the other person's ambition, whatever they're trying to achieve, like how can you support that? And you also have to be mindful, and I think I've learned this recently, that there will be times in your life where it's time to hit the gas and maybe you will be so obsessed and so maniacal and like, hey, Paulina, we only have one year to achieve this goal. We're never gonna have this window of opportunity again. Mm. I'm gonna hit the gas and I might not be as like, you know, attentive or like whatever, whatever it may be. Um, and, and like, same for me, I recently experienced this with uh, having a child. I didn't realize how much effort and time and caring and brain power it would take. Um, and some people won't see that as ambitious, but I did. Like to me, it was ambitious to have a child and write a book. Uh, but, but it was like, um, I knew that like that wasn't the gas. That wasn't the time in my life to hit the gas on. I want to be editor in chief of New York Times, right? Mm, like, yeah. Uh, so I think like yes. I think, um, in my opinion. Life is way more fun if you're with somebody who matches your level of ambition than if you're super motivated and your partner isn't because in that way you're not growing together and it's really hard to have conversations with the person closest to you when you feel like they don't understand what you're going through. Mm. Mm. That is interesting. You know, if I was going to, and I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Um, I I am. <laughs> <laughs> she is. Um, if I was going to give, if I was going to give the pushback from what yeah. I've seen, and not really personally in my life, but even just like from what people have said, especially if their partner's like super ambitious yeah. and they're ambitious themselves, is that it feels like a trade-off where... It's almost like one person's ambition has to take the back seat to the other person's ambition. At certain points in their life or like always? Um, well, I think usually in the relationships that don't work, it's because one person feels like they're always taking ah. the back seat. Yeah, like I'm trying to imagine an Elon Musk with an Elana Musk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like those two exact types of people in one relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I also... 
I, I think there's a level of like empathy and social awareness you need to have as a person to make a relationship work in the first place. Um, which is, I mean, you see the most successful people, like the most successful people traditionally, let's say the, the wealthiest people, uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. <laughs> it, it's, it's tough, I think, to have a relationship on that level, but I'm not sure that it's because of ambition. And I think it has more to do with the fact of like the public pressure but there are some people who are more lone wolves, like I think Elon is, where they're so maniacal and obsessed that anything that gets in the way is just seen as a distraction. Mm. You know what? Here's where I want to end, actually. Yeah. We've spoken about, um, like, the secrets, I guess, of the most successful people. And we've spoken about things that you wouldn't even expect. I'm interested in, like, the pitfalls which is like, I think we spend so much time uh, like heralding these people that have achieved these things. Like you think about an Elon Musk or a Steve mm -hmm. Jobs or a Jeff Bezos, um, whoever, whoever it is. And you can go down the line, you can go into music, you can go yeah. in entertainment, you can go in sports, you can go entrepreneurship. Um, a lot of the times for their outward success, there's also another part of their life, which is like, it seems like complete shambles. Like it seems all over the place. And kind of where my mind goes is like, is there a destructive, um, like a self-destructive tendency? They have these ways of operating which have created these incredible results, mm -hmm. but it also seems as beneficial and as amazing as that has been in one arena for them, it has been equally destructive in another arena. Totally. And I think about um, Elon Musk has been divorced, right? A few different times. Steve Jobs had like a contentious thing with like uh, mm -hmm. his daughter, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Bezos was divorced and that was like a big thing. Now he has a yacht with his girlfriend's <laughs> <Yeah>. face on it. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it worked. Um, yeah. I'm just curious about that. Like when you were even putting this together, was it almost like... Were there certain things that you saw in that process where you were like, these ways of thinking have created these amazing results. Yeah. But here are actually the, the pitfalls as well. Like here are the things you just need to watch out for that almost come with success, with come with being so maniacal, obsessive, ambitious, like the pitfalls of that. Yeah. Well, and uh, I talk a lot about like, for example, Al Pacino is considered like the greatest actor of our time, um, but he had a really hard time dealing with his parents' divorce when he was little, and then he's had relationship issues for the rest of his life. And I, I, I think that it's almost like it doesn't have to be destructive if you're aware. And the reason that I tried to shine the light on so many different types of people is because no one has it all figured out. Like it's not all perfect. It's just that you as an individual can work on those areas that you feel like are not in shambles. But I, I, I do think like 
obsession is a double-edged sword. It can turn you into someone who can take us to Mars, but it can also turn you into someone who can't have a healthy relationship. It's like, you almost have to look at, what I talk about in the beginning of the book is anytime you see somebody that you wanna put on a pedestal, like ask yourself, am I willing to make the, the same mistakes, the same trade-offs, the same sacrifices as this person? Because blind idolizing, blind idolizing of someone is really scary and terrifying and destructive for yourself, but learning from them isn't. So if you know that this person has it all figured out in this area, but this area is in complete shambles, are you willing to make that trade-off? Mm -hmm. And so I asked myself that all the time. I interviewed Melinda Gates and like, at the time when I interviewed her, it was relationship goals and couple goals and whatever. And I saw that and I was like, oh man, I mean, <laughs> we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Mm. And then was, as we all found out, it wasn't that rosy. Um, so it's like, if you idolize someone, you're just blindly worshiping an imperfect version or a perfect version of an imperfect person. You have this like perfect idea in your head of what they're like, when in reality, they're probably much, much different. Um, in terms of like how you as an individual should define success, I end the book with the speech from Anna Quinlan where she talks about how if success looks good to the world but doesn't feel good in your heart, then it is not success at all. And then she quotes Lily Tomlin and says, uh, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Mm. <laughs> so it's like you you have to understand what you're making these sacrifices for. Um, oh God, who was it? I I know exactly. I, I'm forgetting his name, um, but he's a famous like travel channel guide person, and he says that his biggest regret. He's so wealthy. He's traveled every country in the world. But his biggest regret is that he missed out on his kids' childhoods. And that's one thing he will never get back. Mm -hmm. And it's like you read that and you're like, wow, okay, I could have this extraordinary life traveling the world at the expense of my family. And it, I don't know. I think it's like personal for every single person. That's the biggest secret um, to success is that success is personal. Mm -hmm. So if you if you feel like if I take humans to Mars, that is success and I've saved humanity, that that's perfectly fine for you. But I think for somebody like me, actually having a family and good relationships plays a much bigger role in what I want to accomplish. Yeah. You know what's so interesting? And I, I think about this um sometimes I think about this sometimes. I think I actually have a note about this in my phone, which is like, I want to be successful. But then I don't want to change after this success occurs. Mm. Like I want to be successful and then I don't want to lose myself afterwards. Wait, can I ask you a question? Go for it. Okay. <laughs> do you feel, who do you feel like is like the real you? Is mm. it like you five years ago, you today, you tomorrow, or you after you've had success? Oh, that is a good question. Who is the real me? You know what? It's... <sighs> 
for me, where my mind goes, I think the real me was me in the beginning. Hmm. So like when I was at my youngest, and and just to give context, yeah, so, we'd love to hear. <laughs> um, damn, you switched the tables on me. You turned <laughs> no, no, the tables this is on me. <laughs> um, so I grew up like the first ten years of my life. Uh, I was with my mom and my older brother. Okay. My mom was like a single mom, mm-hmm. and so we had um, this flat in London or apartment in London. Uh, flat, yeah, is apartment. I'm, I'm <laughs> translating for the people. For the at American home. viewers, <laughs> um, we had this flat in London, and it was small, and it was like just us. Yeah, and there was like, it wasn't similar to almost what you said. Like it wasn't great. There were so many things that were wrong. Yeah. But I loved the fact that it was like just us and it yeah. felt so secure and it was like these people that you would like trust your life to. Right. And um, I think what that gave me, it gave me like a certain level of comfort within that environment where I was just so myself. Yeah. And it's interesting, like as I've gotten older and achieved certain things and became more confident and just had certain experiences... Yeah. And even coming to New York, actually, in in large part as well, it's I found that there's parts of me that are just returning to that. Like the way that I was as a kid, I'm just when I was in that house and I was yeah. so unencumbered and I was just who I was. Society hadn't gotten to you. Yeah, yet. <laughs> hadn't gotten to me. Um, I'm just that person more often. Mm, I like that. And so I think that I feel like that is. And to be honest, actually, I use that as the benchmark a lot. Mm-hmm. Are like, there certain things that you measure or is it just more like I feel like I can express my views more? Of- you, you know what it is? It's like um, I'm at an age where so many things are happening for the first time. Mm. And so you don't know how to navigate it. Like you don't have a reference in your right. life of like, I did this thing and it turned out successful mm-hmm. or even if it turned out a failure, it's like a reference point. And so often I'll have these decisions and I just won't know the answer. And so it's like, obviously you get people's opinions, but I've always been very big and like, I want to do things that like feel callum. And so when yeah. I ask myself, I'm like, what feels callum? It's like, it tends to go back to the to the kid. Like, what would he have wanted? Like, That's what really would have been, I don't know, like, what would have been cool to him? Because I just feel like that's the purest kind of form of who I was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of, like, achieving success, you don't want to change in the sense that you want to become more of that person instead of... Yeah, I think that's to it. And then I think the other thing is, is that similar to you, um, and it'd be interesting to actually kind of see where where this stems from. I unknowingly spent so much of my life just observing others (laughs) in like a, almost like a strange, bizarre level of detail. This makes sense why why you have a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) And I'll literally, um, it's interesting when I was a kid, I remember certain experiences and I remember doing, um, I was always very good at watching someone else doing something mm. and then being able to replicate it. Interesting. And the, the reason why is because I would literally like, I would be studying them. Like I wasn't just yeah. watching. I was studying. I was looking at the way that they precisely did everything. Yes. 
so that I could replicate it. Um, and so like, as I got older and older, I would listen to podcasts mm -hmm. and I would listen to successful people on podcasts because I was like almost downloading the information. Like I was yeah. like learning and I would pay attention to like these very small, weird details that they would say, like mm -hmm. you wouldn't even think about it. Um, they might be talking about the process of like how they made a certain decision. Yeah. And my brain would just key in on it. Mm -hmm. And it was so that I could use that same kind of framework to then apply something to myself. And I think the reason I say all of that was um, as I would observe people that achieved a lot of success and especially people that had like the chip on the shoulder mm -hmm. and they had like this kind of aggravation to everything they did and then they achieved the thing. I just always resonated with that person. Um, to be honest, I always just found it kind of corny that after they achieved it, it felt like sometimes they became someone else mm -hmm. and they almost became like a horror. Like they became like, <laughs> I don't know, like to the people that were around them, right? it was like, it just went off the rails. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, I was always like, okay, I know I'm going to achieve this thing, I feel it with such certainty. But I was like, once I do, I actually think a bigger achievement is not That's yeah, becoming like the horror. Um, and I feel it sometimes because sometimes I'll achieve something and I'll be like, I am the man. Yeah, And yeah. I'm like, if this happened, what if I got like an accomplishment that was 10x of what I just experienced? Right. Would I like lose lose perspective yeah and then would i become no because if you're thinking about it you're not gonna yeah let's <laughs> hope so when i talk to you in 10 years you're like oh that no. guy was he went off um no, that's so interesting yeah yeah i like that no I, the reason i ask is because um i i i do talk about how like uh identity is very slippery so when in 10 years you don't know who you will be but you can rely on the fact that if you have those kind of um, north stars of values, you'll always come back to the things that are actually important to you and you won't lose sight of those things, mm. I would hope. <laughs> yeah, because I think, I think, and you know what the thought process actually in my brain was, was like, um, the one thing that's worse than getting all the success and all the achievements is what if you got it and then it turned into a nightmare? And it probably will. Anthony and I always talk about like, there's the the rise and then every single person I think has the fall. Mm. And it's like how you react to that fall that determines whether you succeed again. Mm. But the next time you succeed, you succeed with you're more humble, you're more aware, you're like more empathetic. <laughs> um, and I think that like the secret ways of thinking, I think one of the most interesting things that I've seen people do who have performed at the highest levels is that they're not scared to fail, not because of all the mushy reasons of like, don't be scared to fail. They're not scared to fail because they know that they will never, ever again start from zero. I think most people, when they think about failure, when you've tasted success, it's very hard to try something new, but if you're willing to risk something and fail, you actually will learn so much more than the person who has never failed because you now have all the experiences, et cetera. And you're, uh, you're not starting from scratch. 
you have the skills, even if it's not obvious. And I learned this when I interviewed um, MMA champion Francis Ngannou, who has this incredible story. Um, he, he literally came from nothing and he achieved a lot in a very short period of time. And when I talked to him, he was like, I'm not afraid to start over. And he was like, um, he said something like, um, his mom always told him sometimes to, sometimes you need to step back to jump farther. And he's like, that's what I'm not afraid of. He's like, I've met so many talented people, smart people, whatever. They're just so, so scared mm. that they'll have to start over or if the, everything's taken from them. He's like, my hidden genius is that I'm willing to start over and over and over and over again. And that's something you can never take away from me. Mm. So, And it's, it's, it's so, it's so incredibly powerful. And I think even when I was um, from just like studying and, and listening to people that have achieved a lot, it's just, I think something that you start to see in the story is a lot of the times the thing that you're most afraid of and that you're like, this this one thing just can't happen. Right. That is always the thing. <laughs> and so I'm like, I, I think about that as well sometimes where I'm like, what's the what's the thing that you're like really afraid? Because it's weird how the mind works and like, it's almost like your subconscious it knows that you're afraid of this thing. So it keeps and so putting it, you in situations. Yeah. And it almost guides your decision making that you're trying mm. to avoid. It's, um, isn't there that quote? I'm going to butcher the quote. But it's almost like um, we tell God our plans and God laughs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it's like when you're trying to engineer your life to avoid something. Yeah. It usually comes about in in like an unimaginable, in, in like a worse way than you could have ever imagined. It's like, it's almost, it's like a cruel irony. Exactly. Um, I know. You spend so much time trying to prevent it from happening that it Yeah, all... it occurs. And it's completely unexpected. And mm. yeah. That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> the hidden genius. The hidden yeah. genius. Perfect way to end. Thanks <laughs> Thank so much you, for Gal. coming on. This was a great conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the channel. We're having fire conversations every week on the podcast. Before we end the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Free Agency. What if I told you there is a good chance you're leaving money on the table in your career? It would kind of annoy you a bit, right? Well, Free Agency aims to stop that. They represent and manage talent in the tech industry. Here's how they do it. First, they provide you with a dedicated talent agent. Think about this as your career quarterback. They understand you and your career goals. Based on that understanding, they bring you suitable interviews at top firms. You focus on smashing the interview and together with their network, research, negotiation expertise, they will make sure you get a top of market salary. Stop job searching alone and start building your dream career today with free agency.